When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to this podcast, which is an abridged version of the television interview that I did with Nadia Hussein as part of my In Conversation series for W. This podcast is brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with someone who up to two years ago had no career aspirations apart from being a stay-at-home mum. But since winning the Great British Bake Off, she's become an established television presenter, an author of fiction and non-fiction, and in many people's eyes, the most vocal representation of the Muslim community on British TV today. Tonight, I'm going to be in conversation with Nadia Hussein. show of all the people I've ever had on the show I've never had anybody on whose life has changed so dramatically and so quickly the last 18 months for you must must have been bonkers yeah (laughs) yeah when you say 18 months I can't quite believe where I was yeah 18 months two years yeah Two years ago, I was at home with the kids, which is a great place to be because, actually, if I'd known that that was relaxing, then I'd probably never have been <laughs> here right now. Um, but it has... It's kind of just catapulted. And, but, you know, when everything... There's, like, I'm, there's that momentum and you, everything just kind of goes like this, and I'm expecting it to just nosedive any time. Just I'm expecting it to just go... But, uh, I mean, how's, how's the family reacting to it? Because you've got three young kids... You've got Abdul, your husband, all of a sudden your whole life's gone 100 miles an hour. It's very difficult to comprehend unless you're in the middle of it. <clears throat> yeah, I think for, for him, he's, he's actually this... He's, he, the one thing he can't do is cook, but he's really good at everything else. So I can never really have a go at him ever. He's so good, he's so supportive. And my kids are... My boys are 10 and 9 and my little girl is 6. The boys are like they to them they're not they're not that bothered you know they're like oh this is what she does mm-hmm. and this is her job and they're not bothered it's only when we go out they become really territorial they're like little they're like terriers it's yeah. like, if anyone comes up to me they're like mommy mommy someone's looking at you and they don't want me to they don't want me to stop they just want to have a normal day and so now I'm a little bit choosy about where I go and what I'm doing sometimes because they just need mummy time and my little girl she's the one that kind of goes between two very different emotions. Some mornings I'll get up at sort of five o'clock in the morning and I tiptoe out and I'm like, she can't hear me, she can't hear me. And I'll tiptoe out downstairs and she's like, mommy? And I'm like, oh no, she woke up. I've already said, I've done our goodbyes the night before. So I'll do all the goodbyes and the kisses the night before and she gets really upset. And she knows, she's she's a girl, I know. I know what I'm like with my dad. And she knows exactly what to say to get me. So she'll say, <laughs> That's creepy. That's quite. But then she's also the, the same child. 
if we're out and nobody recognizes me, she, she will stand in the middle of the shopping center or the supermarket and say, oh my goodness, is that Lardy off the bake shop? <laughs> I'm like, oh, just the one day when I'd rather she didn't do that and I just want to get in, get my milk and get out, she will say that. So she kind of goes between the two. She, she has moments where she's really happy and others when she's not, so. And you're married to Abdal and it was an arranged marriage, which is a, a process not many of us are actually familiar with. I mean, I was very lucky because our, we, we kind of got introduced, but we hadn't seen pictures of each other. My dad and his dad had worked together with... They'd worked with each other when they were teenagers, moved away to different parts of the country, and then reintroduced by mutual friends. And then my father-in-law said, so I've got this son. And my, my dad said, well, I've got four daughters. So, you know, <laughs> take, <laughs> take all of them. Whichever one you want. Um, and, and that's kind of how it worked. And then we spoke to each other for six months. And then I, at 20, I think I was quite... I think I was for 20 I was asking all the right questions like I did I hadn't seen his picture I'd asked him you know what's your 10-year forecast and what's your plan do you want to buy a house you know what are you doing how much are you earning I asked all the right questions uh, how old was he 23 so if you ask an average 23 year old young man yeah. what his 10-year plan is <laughs> he'll go uh, yeah <laughs> well he knew exactly what he knew the right things to say yeah and then we got married <laughs> Yeah, but in that in that bit where you're, you're conversing during those six months before, yeah. before you've seen each other, was there a point where you just <clears> went along with it, or was there a point where you go, actually, this is this person is more than saying the right things. He's actually reaching me in a way that I wasn't expecting. No, not at all. We didn't have that kind of connection at all. It was just it was formality. It was very much tick box, and um, and then we in the end we saw a picture of each other, just one picture. He saw one of me, and I saw one of him, and I was like, the voice, uh, it, it all matches. It seems to, you know, and it was all, and it sounds really clinical, but it sounds that's, very matter of fact. It well. is, and it was, and that's kind of that's how I was raised, and that's how lots of people get married in my culture. Not everyone, you know, lot, not everyone has a, a very standard arranged marriage. Lots of people pick their own husbands, and for me, I, I kind of couldn't be bothered. It seemed like a lot of hard work. Well, would it be something you'd advocate for your own kids? No, 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 never, no, I just never. Firstly, because as soon as they're ready to get married, I am going to change the locks on the doors, <laughs> and then I'm going to go on... I won't do that. They'll all ha always have bedrooms in the house. Um, I am going to... You know, I want to go off, and I want to go on a cruise, and I want to buy a sports car, and I want to have a great time, and I want them to go and live their lives. You know, because I grew up in a culture where I did feel slightly restricted. I wasn't always allowed to do everything that I wanted to do, and I think, for me, marriage was the way out. It was like, well, if I get married, I can do whatever I like. Forgive me, because the detail is what's most most enlightening, really. You, you've you've talked to each other on the phone. You've yeah. seen a photograph. Then you've met and got engaged. The first day we ever actually physically were in a room together was the day we got engaged. Like that's amazing. Did any of your non-Muslim friends say, "What are you doing"? Um, no, because they were all having a great time at university. <laughs> so I was left. 20. They'd all, they'd all gone to, off to university and have a great Because you had the chance time. to go to university, didn't you? I did. I got into university and I was the first girl and the first family member in our whole family, and I mean extended family, to get into university. And um, my parents are immigrants and they've, they've been here for a very long time, but they, um, as soon as I got into university, they were really pleased, but then they said, no, you can't go. I remember it being quite tough at the time, but I never fell out with them. Never, ever fell out with them, because it's just... I suppose it's not in my nature to fall out. Maybe I'm just a really good daughter. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I'm well, not. Why I just, didn't um, want you to go? Because they were scared. They were scared. They were afraid. I was the first girl, the first p 
first per member of the family to get to university and I was planning on leaving home and it was very it's very uncommon in our family especially in our family for a girl to leave home unmarried and um, and so I just said okay and and then that my only other option was then well then I'll get married so we got married I got pregnant I had a baby had another baby and then sort of two years into our marriage I thought do I actually like him it, you know it took me two a good two years before you know and when we got married he made me throw away my shoes like I should have left him that day really sorry made you throw away he said your you don't need that many shoes let's get rid of them and he just packed them all in a suitcase and said let's get rid of them and he took them to the charity shop should have left him then really I somehow don't one. think he'd do that now no no he wouldn't so when he said that because he's a young man you're a young woman did yeah. you just think okay well I, I will be the subservient wife and allow that to happen because that's what should happen no, I uh, I let him get rid of them and then spent all of his money on replacing them. Yeah. <laughs> and and your, your mum and dad were from Bangladesh. So mm. your mum and dad were immigrants who came in and, and established a life for themselves. Yeah. And everything that I've heard you talk about is that they wanted to maintain a degree of Bangladeshi identity. Yeah. But but were very happy to integrate as well. And that's that's where I, I find it so interesting when you talk <laughs> about things like the arrangement marriage because on one side that's so I don't know so so different for most of us but on the other side you're the epitome of what makes Britain great because you make cakes <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's not more British than a cake no there isn't no there isn't I didn't grow up eating cake my mum had an oven and uh, she never turned the oven on so the knobs got all sticky so I never really knew what they she were... never turned it on? No. You know, like those stand, freestanding yeah. ovens? Well, she had one of those with a little grill on top. And I always thought it was a cupboard. So she would put all her frying pans in there. So I just thought it was a cupboard. I does never... She use, does she use the hob at the top? Yeah, the hob, the grill. But she never, ever used she the oven. She never baked never, anything? Never baked anything. And then I was in year eight. And, um, and that's kind of where my love for baking really began, was when I was in sort of first or second year of high school. And food studies and turned up in class. And, and the teacher, she was... To me, she was a sorceress. She was mixing butter and sugar, and, and, and I'd never seen my mum mix butter and sugar and eggs and flour. It was always onions and garlic and ginger and, you know, spices. So I never saw that, and, and, and she was mixing this up, and then she puts it into this tin, and then she pops it into the oven. And I said, I kind of stopped the whole class, and I said, um, you've just turned the cupboard on. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she said, you silly girl, that's an oven. And I was, although I'd seen ovens on the telly, I'd never really put two and two together, and she turned this oven on, put this thing in and out comes a cake. And it's the first time I'd ever seen a cake come out in a tin. And to me, she was a sorceress. I just could not believe that she'd just made this cake. And I think that magic stayed with me forever. You entered the cake competition, but all of a sudden, <clears throat> a lot of people now would turn to you for cultural references. They would turn to yeah. you as a spokesperson of the Muslim community, uh, which is not a job that you really signed up for. Because I'm already asking you things <clears throat> that I wouldn't ask anybody else because I've never had the opportunity. Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, that's quite scary, actually, because because I didn't go on because I wanted to do it. I baked because it was my therapy. Um, I suffer with panic disorder and it was my husband who put the application in and he's the one who did most of the application and said, I was too scared, I couldn't get out of bed. You know, some days I was in bed for three days. You couldn't get out of bed because of what? Because of the panic? Yeah, some days I was just, I couldn't get out of bed. So describe that to us, because I know people who have panic attacks, but I don't know people who, who have become bedridden from it. It's that fe feeling of not having any emotion. 
and not knowing where you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to be doing. And anyone who, it's a really tricky one to describe. But the only way, when someone asks me, how do you describe your panic disorder? I describe it as a, a monster. Um, to me, it's like a monster. And some days the monster shouts in my face. And no matter where I turn, he will keep shouting at me. And he would keep saying things to me and, and I can't get him out of my face. And other days he's behind me and he'll tap me on the shoulder a little bit here and there through the day and I can ignore him completely. And other days I can put him in my pocket. And, and that's how I describe... Is there ever a day he's not there? No, he's always there. He will always be there. But what I've learned about panic disorder is that I've spent my whole life trying to find a cure. And you go to the doctors and they'll give you pills and say, here you go, have that, and then you just won't feel anything. And the, what's the point in not feeling anything? And what I've learned about panic is that it, it's never going to go away. And I have to learn to... I have to learn to live with my monster. He's never going to go away. He's always going to be there because he comes at me at the most... Like, he, he turns up at the most unexpected times. This is so interesting because you're now living a life where you, it's justified to be panicky. You're living a life where you're scrutinised, you're in the public yep. eye, as you say, you go <laughs> to the shops and people are stopping you and looking at you. That makes you feel panicky if you haven't got a disorder. Yeah. So for you, this last this last two years yeah. must have been a real minefield to yeah, walk through. Yeah, I've had hairy moments. I've had hairy moments where I've thought, I, can't, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know why I'm doing this. But what I've learned, I know now why my husband put that application in, because when he did the application, he... His words stick with me because he said, um, I married somebody very different. Um, and I'm quite, I think I'm quite feisty and my dad will tell you I'm feisty. Um, and he just said, you have to do this because you've spent 10 years, eight, nine years looking after me and the kids and the home. And what's happened, what had happened was I'd become quite obsessed with making sure that my kids' nails were clipped, making sure that they were always dressed really well, making sure that they went to every playgroup, making sure that they knew all their alphabets before they were two. And that became, I became obsessed. And what happened was he never got a look in. Mm. And he said, look, I just, I, I get that you like a clean house, but there's something not okay with this because you do everything for us, but you do nothing for you. And he just, his words were, somewhere along the way, your wings were clipped and I haven't seen you fly. And that's why he did the application. And, and he, he did all the kind of boring bits and he said, you've got to do this. And I said, I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not doing it because I, I'm scared that I'll fail. And the only thing I've got right is my kids. The only thing I've got right is that I married you and I had the kids. And that's the only thing I've got right. And he said, no, I think, I, I said, no, I'm going to mess this up and I can't do it. And he said, just for once, just take a risk, just do it. So I did it and I, I chewed his ear off in the process. I was like, I did it, I'm doing this, but if I fail, this is all your fault. And like, I blamed him the whole way through, made it to the final 12. And then I rang him and I said, I've made it. I was really happy. And then I was hysterical and I said, I can't do it. I can't do it. I've never been on a train. I'd never been on a train. Never been on a train? No. How do you mean you'd never been on a train? Never been on a train. I'd been on a train with the children, but only if he put me on the train with the kids and only if my brother met me at the other end. No stops, start to finish. I had to have somebody there and I had somebody at that end. And this isn't a cultural thing. This is not a, a, a male accompaniment. No. Or it was just pure fear. 
Somebody had to drop me off at the beginning, somebody had to be there on the platform at the end. I said, I pay for a ticket, get yourself inside, stand at the platform, because I'm not going to get on that train otherwise. So it would be my brother or my sister or somebody would pick me up. That end to that end, I would never be on my own, never be without the kids. And then I made it to the final 12 and I said, could you come on the first day? And he said, well, I can't come on the first day because I've got to look after the kids. And I tried really hard. I rang the Bake Off team three times to say I don't want to do it. And every time I rang them, they said hello and I hung, hung up. <laughs> And then I tried again the next day and they said hello and I hung up and I did that three times. And then I cried at the end of the bed and I said, please tell me to not do this because if you don't tell me to not do this, then I can't do it. He said, you can do whatever you like. I'm not telling you. I'm not saying anything. And he just turned away and he just said, nope, not happening. If you want to say no to them, you ring them yourself. I'm not doing it. And I was handing him the phone hysterically saying, please ring them and tell them I can't do it. Tell them I'm sick, tell them I'm dead, tell them anything, just tell them I can't do it. He wouldn't do it. He said, nope, not happening, you do it yourself. And I didn't do it. And then I, I got on the train on my own. That's the most scariest thing I'd ever done in my life, was getting on that train. When you get when you go into it, did they say, look, you come down for two days filming, ten days filming? You got any idea how long you so could you possibly go for? You film every weekend. You film every weekend for ten weeks. And I thought I'd only make it. I thought, right, I'll be kicked out first week. It'll be fine. Just have to do this once. I kept telling myself, you have to do this once. So I did that. And I, I got on the train. I was the sweatiest person on that platform. And I had my brown paper bag. I had my elastic band. So I, I, I used to wear an elastic band. So every time I was on the verge of falling apart, I would ping this elastic band. And that would, it's like shock therapy. It's something I learned through the years. And then by pinging this, and if you watch it back, you'll see up to week six, I have an elastic band on my wrist. And I would, even in the Bake Off book, there's a hat, there's a picture with my wrist and an elastic band. And I wore that elastic band for 20 something years. I wore that elastic band. And I remember doing, I remember getting on the train and then I made it and I made it, I made it to the tent. I got, I got to the platform. I was six hours late. And then I called someone and I said, I'm here. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm six hours late, but I, I made it, I made it. They didn't realise why I was so happy. They were angry I was six hours late, but I was happy. Made it to this platform. And, and then I had to bake, but I was more worried about how I was supposed to get home. I was like, oh, I've got to do that whole thing all over again. And I didn't get kicked out week one. I was like, oh, I've got to do it again. And it was just a mixture. Well, what was the brown paper bag for? When I couldn't breathe, I would have to breathe into the bag to regulate my breathing. Otherwise, I'd just go blue and just, like, just collapse. So when the attack... When an attack comes on, it's not emotional, it's physical as well. Yeah, it feels like you're going to die. Your airways close up and you can't breathe and you're trying to cry and you're crying at the same time. And I can't describe it because unless you suffer with something like it, you can't quite describe what it feels like. But to me, it feels like I'm dying. But it seems to me, like, Bake Off, I, you know, I said right at the beginning, it changed your life. But, but it really did change your life. It's changed you as a person. When you won it, the final bit, which I think won the nation's heart, was your reaction to winning it and what you said. And and it, you can really put it into context now with yeah. you telling us the history behind it. To be honest, you know, for most of the country, for most of the world who'd seen it, you were somebody who was talking about a baking competition. Yeah. But now we know you weren't talking about a baking competition. No. You were talking about something a lot bigger. Bake Off, I don't think unless you do it, you realise what it can do to you. But for me, it wasn't about winning. I could have... I had that same feeling when I came off that tube, when I came to that platform six hours late and I didn't have my kids with me and I didn't have my husband with me. And I stood there on that platform six hours late and I already felt like that. So yeah. I didn't have to win. I never needed to win to feel like that. But to have gone ten weeks and every time I felt like I couldn't do it, I'd go home. 
and my husband would say, I, I'd say, I can't do this, this is not okay, I'm, I feel like I'm going to die every single week. And I'd come home and I would go back to my hotel room and I'd have panic attacks and I would ring him and he'd have to listen at the other end of the phone, I'm having a panic attack. And I'd say, don't go because if I die, I need you to know that I'm dying in this room. So I would ring him and he'd listen to that because I don't want to die and I don't want my kids to not know. And, you know, like it was all those stupid things that kind of go around in your head. And he had to sit through that. And that's hard for any husband yeah. because he's the one who did it. <laughs> he's the one who made me do this. And so he would, he felt like he was punishing me, but he knew that somewhere deep down I needed to do this because he needed to see me fly. And that's what he says. He says, I see you fly. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by UK TV Play, the free on-demand service, where you can watch the TV shows you love from Dave, Yesterday, Really and Drama, wherever you want, whenever you want. The home of BAFTA-nominated series Taskmaster and the critically acclaimed Red Dwarf, alongside other UK TV Play exclusive including The White Princess and Most Haunted. UK TV Play offers free access to thousands of hours of comedy, drama, documentaries and paranormal TV, all for free. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's funny when you talk about, you know, the start of your life and your, your, your parents telling you not to go to university and then you're having a arranged marriage when you're 20 and then you quickly have two kids. Yeah. That all seems like the recipe of, of somebody who's being made the subservient woman, somebody who's being put in the corner to stay in the kitchen. <clears throat> but you look at that and your parents are there and they're overjoyed and uh, and already they know that your life's going to be different. You, you, you're not the, the, the young girl who can say, no, you can't go to university. <clears throat> and, and your husband filled the form in and he's already aware that there's going to be a change in life and, and he's supportive of you. So it, it really is, for me, an interesting uh, paradox, really, to, to the expectation of people who, who don't share your culture yeah. to the reality of it. Because people who don't share your culture would think, OK, well, the woman's kept her home, she knocks out a load of babies, does the cooking, the husband makes, <clears throat> makes the money, and that's just the way it is. That's clearly not the way it is, is it? No, and I think I have to give, in all of this, my, my parents had to, you know, they had a tough... They were born somewhere, raised, you know, then, then they, quite young, moved to a country where they suffered racism beyond belief. Mm. 
and then they had their own children, tried to maintain their own culture while we mixed in a different culture entirely. And that was really tough for them. And I think the one thing that came out of after I won, the one thing that happened was my, you know, like my parents were so proud. And my dad said to me, I'm so proud of you for changing in you what we couldn't change. So knowing what they know now, they'd let you go to university. Yeah, I'm sure they would have. Yeah, I'm sure they would have. But there's no point. I don't believe in No, I know, yeah. but what I mean is it's the evolution of understanding, yeah. isn't it? Your life has allowed them to see things in a different way. Yeah, yeah. and my mum, who was a stay-at-home mum, after I won Bake Off, went out and she filled out an application form and she went to her first interview and she got her first job in a mango factory and she's so proud of that. And she was so proud of the fact that she went out and she did all of those things by herself. She didn't ask any of us for help. She did it all by herself. She went to the interview and she got a job. And she said, don't tell anybody that I work in a mango factory. It'd be so embarrassing for you. And I said, don't ever say that because I'm so proud of you because it doesn't matter where that encouragement comes from. It doesn't have to be from a parent. It, ha it can come from a child. And if you see me and you think that you can change your life, then you should. And, you know, go, go and do whatever it is that you want. You don't have to be at home your whole life. You don't have to cook. And she did it for the first time in her life. She went out and she got herself a job. And, like, she's changing. And that's, you know, we're evolving as a yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you mentioned that they suffered terrible racism when, when they came over. I mean, how did that manifest themselves and what made them battle through it and not go back? <clears throat> my granddad suffered, you know, I, the stories that my mum tells me of my granddad suffering racism, it's it's shocking. In what way? Uh, he was spat at, he was beaten up. Um, and my granddad, because he was the one, he, he was the one who lived in this country, he, he was so fearful for his life and his children's lives that he would tell my mum, don't go out, don't go out, don't go out with the kids, you know, stay indoors. And that's where she, the fear of going out because she'd be spat at or be beaten up like her dad was, she would stay indoors, so... It takes a strength of character to, to battle through that. Yeah, I think, and that's why I, I my parents, my granddad, my grandparents, my mum, my, my dad, I think they were really tough to stick it out because they saw that it would give us a better life. And they were right to stay. Um, but I want to say that things have changed, but they haven't because... I suffer sort of the same racism now. My brothers, my sisters, they all kind of still suffer that sort of racism even now. I find that incomprehensible. But does that, is that how it is? The world, I think now, the world feels like a much smaller place, especially with social media. So you can get it at every angle. You know, I could walk mm. out the house or walk out of my car or go shopping and get that kind of abuse and then look at my phone and then have a flurry of it on my phone. So it's everywhere. You can't get away from it. You know, at least when, I'm not saying it's okay, but you know, when my granddad got it, he got it and it was, you know, it was there and then it was gone. Whereas you can sit in the comfort of your own home in your own living room and have that same abuse sat in your pajamas and listen to the negativity and the nasty things that people have to say to you. And I want to say, I would love to sit here and say, it doesn't exist. Of course it exists. We just, we don't always talk about it, especially when something happens in the media and some nutter has done something crazy and then you know the first thing that happens is they point people point fingers and somehow you know the natural thing is to associate me or other muslims with that situation and i'm no different to everybody else i'm not pleased that these things happen i'm with everybody else when i'm sad and upset that people lose lives because of some nutter who decides to do something crazy and it's really hard to ignore but you know there came a point where i, I used to ignore it and i thought you know what i don't have to ignore this i don't have to ignore this i don't want to engage in a conversation but i don't have to stay quiet i don't have to listen to this i don't have to take it and um yeah and i you know i get all sorts i you know out of profanity and 
you know, I'm so often told to leave and that I'm not British and I'm, you know, that I shouldn't be in this country. And there would have been a point where I would have said, no, I'm not going to answer to that. But why shouldn't I? I have every right to be here. My granddad suffered racism to be here for a better life. And he has, you know, he's contributed. And so have my parents. And they suffered long and hard for us to be here. And I used to not say anything. And now I think very hard before I put anything on Twitter. But I will put it out there because I know my kids will face it at one point yeah. in their life. And I'd like to think that I'd raise my children well enough to know that they can respond, but respond well. But don't you think that's possibly what's required to have a voice for people instead of instead of just taking it or trying to absorb it yeah. or to not not respond to it well that's where i think it's really important for someone like me who is out there and i didn't i tried really hard to ignore it like i think at the very beginning i kind of tried to ignore the yeah. fact that i have this position and that i am who i am and i am you know and i am muslim and I am proud. And I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of being Muslim. I'm proud of being British. I'm proud to be Bangladeshi, but it doesn't have to be. I think that's. I think that's where the problem lies. Is that everything is so black and white, yeah. and and everything isn't black and white. You know, I think when everything becomes so black and white, you lose human nature and you you you, you lose humanity. And the problem isn't religion; it's humanity. Yeah. And that's what the problem is because we're too busy looking at differences, and you know we don't look at what actually makes us really similar which is that when stuff like this happens, we all feel sad, you know, and we all, we all kind of stick together. And that's what we should look at. And it's, and you know, I'm not, I'm not big on politics, I must say, you know, like I'm not, it's the most depressing subject. Yeah, no, <sighs> I know what you mean, world. but this isn't about politics, this is about communities, this is about people. And that's, and if we're talking about community and we're talking about people, then that's what it's about. It's yeah. about humanity, isn't it? It's it not is. about the rules and about black and white, because we could sit here and talk to a blue in the face about rules and regulations and who should be doing what and who shouldn't be doing what, but actually it's humanity and that's what we've lost. To be honest, if we sat here and, t and talked until we were blue in the face, then people would start saying, get rid of all the blue people. They're yeah. the problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you feel the person that you are now has bears any relation to the person who got off the train on that platform six hours later? She will always be there. She, she's, she lives deep down somewhere in there and she does surface every now and again. I think I have not, I haven't changed. I'm just a different version of me almost. Like I think, yeah, I, I don't feel like I'm a different person. I'm not a new woman. I've not suddenly become this confident person that can speak and isn't scared because that's a lie. Everyone's scared. Nobody, nobody lives their whole life without being scared. It's, it's not true. And the one thing I've learned about myself is, and, and about panic disorder and about my monster is that my monster would love for me to be scared and say no to everything. And what I've learned is that every time I'm faced with something that scares the living daylights out of me, I, I have to say yes to it. Because if I say yes to it, then I will come out on the other side of fear and then I can put my monster in my pocket. Does that even make sense to you? It does make sense to me. It makes a lot of sense it to makes me. Sense. Yeah. Am I making any sense? Yeah, because I think a lot of people I think are I'm, like that. I think I'm making sense. Yeah. I don't know if you get me. No, I do, because particularly when you break into this world, the media, unexpectedly, like I came to it late like you, and then people say, do you want to do this and you want to do that? And there's always a chance you're going to fail. And yeah. if you fail, you fail very publicly. Yes. And that's why I'm, I suppose, in many respects, in, in awe of all the things you've, you've taken on because any failure would be absolutely massive. But, but yeah, you've took thanks. it on in thanks, your stride. Thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, well, just to, one of the 
You did a... In fact, it was only a two-parter. A, a show called The Chronicles of Nadia, where you mm -hmm. went back. And I thought this was great. In fact, there was a lot of complaints that it was only a two-parter. Did you like the name? Did you like the name? I loved the name, Thank The you. Chronicles of Nadia. Was that your idea? I wish I'd thought of it. No. <laughs> and uh, and you went back to Bangladesh and you caught up with some family members <laughs> and you, did, you, know, you used food as a vehicle in which to meet people. But in some respects, the end of that, that little two-parter summarised a lot of what you, you said tonight. Whenever I've had these opportunities to do anything, I've always said, why am I doing it? And that's the question I, that I ask myself all the time is, what's the purpose of this? Why am I doing this? Why would anyone want to see me do this? And there has to be a purpose. And for me, that journey was a massive, massive, massive stepping stone in my panic disorder. And it wasn't, it wasn't about my career. It wasn't mm. about what I do next. It was about, okay, this is an opportunity for me opportunity for me to do something yet again that will allow me to just be a little bit more comfortable and in in myself uh, in a way that it can help my panic and and that's I'm forever my whole life revolves around not falling apart and that, that sounds ridiculous but that is my whole life revolves around not falling to pieces and yet I do these crazy things like go to Bangladesh and film a documentary um, but what that also does is it allows me to speak openly and honestly about something that lots of people would otherwise perhaps shy away from. And I'm really, I'm so fortunate that I'm able to be in this position where I can talk about things that, will af that do affect people every yeah. single day. And, you know, I, I am lucky because I am a part of all these different communities and different worlds, but I get to go out and do these amazing things and discover parts of myself that I didn't really know very much about. And I think I might spend my whole life doing that. I don't think I'll ever, ever have an actual answer, but I think that, yeah. that's, that's, the, that's the fun that's Do the fun any bit. of us ever get an answer? No, probably not, but it's good fun looking for it. I know, but I think that's sometimes the, the, the reality. People often think there's an answer, you know, yeah. and they think, if we just do <clears> this, then that's the answer to that problem, that's the answer. You, you keep growing, and sometimes when I talk to people who, have, who, who you know, have had mental health issues, at whatever level, whether it be panic attacks or depression or, or any other thing, often the nub of it is, is pressure. There seems to be a pressure somewhere, a pressure of fear, a pressure of wanting to achieve something, a pressure that if you just go, give yourself a break. Yeah. Just give yourself a break because you'll be okay. Yeah, I, um, that's, that's, um, yeah, I think we, I think as human, it's human nature to want an answer yeah. for everything. And I think if you step back sometimes, there, you don't always need to look for an answer. You don't have to always belong somewhere. You could just be you and just be sat satisfied doing that. And, um, what I, recently my, my son, somebody asked my son, um, what does your mummy do? I don't know why they asked him that question. And he don't really have a job title. I don't really have. It, does it, it, it? I mean, what's what's your what's your job title? Entertainer. Oh right. That's what I call it. Entertainer, <laughs> international playboy. I don't. <laughs> the other bit I tend to not mention when the wife's no. around, but the no, entertainer no, no. I keep. International playboy. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. what did he say? He kind of thought, and he wasn't sure. I could see the look. You know, he was thinking. He was really thinking about it. Um, and he and he said, um, she lives her dreams. Oh. And that was it. And that, that's it, isn't it? That, isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we aim to do, is just, just to live that dream, whatever it is? Can I just say, do you know how many people want to adopt your son right now? <laughs> <laughs> what a lovely... He cooks too. Oh. Ten. That's brilliant, then, yeah. isn't it? That's it, that's all it's about. And 
I think I've spent my whole life battling religion, culture, my skin colour, everything. There's, you name it, anxiety, bullying, just all of it. I've just spent my whole life trying to battle all these different parts of me. And in the end, all I wanted to do was really live my dream. And I, what, being here today, right now, makes me realise that I started living my dream a very long time ago, but I was too scared to see that I had, I have the most amazing family, the most amazing supportive parents. And despite some of their decisions, they, they have shaped me to be who I am, which is tough. I'm tough and I don't take no for an answer. And I swim against the tide. And I'm only like that because something in me forced me to do that. And I am also weak. And, you know, I have an amazing husband who sees something in me that I never see in myself. I've got three beautiful children that make every day worth living. You know, I have got so much and I didn't see that before. It was there. It was all there and I didn't see it. And it's and it's taken me this long to see it. So, you know, I was living the dream long before I was living the dream. I just didn't see it. But, you know, now I live the dream and my husband sees me fly. So I didn't know special. what to, to expect tonight because I, I'd never met you before. I'd only seen you on telly. I knew you were lovely and warm. Uh, and inspirational in many respects, but I, my admiration for you has gone up. You've been on a journey that I didn't realise, and I think you'll inspire more people to get out the door and yeah. live their dreams and fly. Fly, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> what a lovely conversation. Nadia Hussein. <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by UKTV Play, the free on-demand service. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.